Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Super Bowl home team sports business podcast, The Sportacast. There we go. Our guest, the chief executive officer of the Los Angeles Rams, Mr. Kevin Demoff. Kevin, how are you? I am fantastic. It is Super Bowl week here in Los Angeles for the first time in three decades, and the Los Angeles Rams are playing in the game, so hard not to be good. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I would think for you, if you can't say things are good this week, man, then, then you're just the depressive sort that I don't really don't know how I you know pull anything out of you. No, I, if you can't enjoy this week and be part of it, then you need a new job. If, if you're going to go you know, work with a group to build a stadium, you know, bring the NFL back to Los Angeles and hope, hope what you built you think can be a Super Bowl team and it all comes to fruition for a magical week, then if you can't enjoy that, then you need a different job. How much of what you're doing right now is the Rams are in the Super Bowl and how much of what you're doing right now is the Rams are hosting the Super Bowl in terms of kind of the the, the planning and leading up in the 14 days to, to, to the game itself? You know, it's a really good question, Evan. So much of the Super Bowl stuff is hay in the barn. Obviously, you have to go execute it. But for two to three years, Kathy Schlossman, Casey Wasserman, the Super Bowl host committee team have been working to make this an unbelievable Super Bowl experience at SoFi Stadium. So, so many of those things have been in place. And I, I just saw the notes that Super, the NFL experience uh, at the LA Convention Center had their best opening day ever uh, over the weekend with over 20,000 people. So things are off to a great start. We, you know, we ordered great weather. We got that. You know, but the balance is all of these things that you were planning, you know, kind of agnostic of the team merged with the team being in it. Um, so something tonight, we have the opening night fan rally. That's something we had to plan, you know, kind of completely out of the blue, the pop-up stores that we're doing uh, at the Grove, all of the activations the team are doing are really, you're building on the fly over the past seven days. And, and that's kind of added to the complication, but it, it's a joyous addition. And I know there are last-placed headaches. There are make-the-playoffs-and-be-eliminated headaches. But there are also Super Bowl headaches. Give me the big one. What's, what's the big headache? Everybody's got to be calling. Oh, wait a minute. I know Kevin from back in high school. I know, you know, what's the biggest headache of being in the position that you are in? Yeah, I, look, I think the biggest headache is just trying to manage all of the ticket requests, family requests that, you know, while you start to plan for that, and we were fortunate enough to be in this game three years ago, uh, and get a handle for that. It's completely different when you're home, right? You know, it's less about hotels and charters, but tickets and where people are staying and, you know, how do you keep people away from the team? 
you know, there's a great element of normalcy. We're practicing in our normal practice facility. The NFC team hotel is our normal team hotel. So all of that is actually pretty easy from a football team perspective. It's actually fairly normal. It does not feel like Super Bowl week at all. But from everything else, it's just making the logistics go. Uh, and how you add that on top to what was already a busy week that had your your entire team already stretched thin before you were in the game. Someone told me recently that in a, in a normal standard Super Bowl, both teams get a certain allotment of tickets to, to kind of distribute. That when one of those teams is a home team, the distribution actually changes a little bit. There's a hosting clause in there. Is that is that right? Yeah, so the league requires that there's ticketing parity between the two teams. So as a host team, you get about 5% of the tickets in the inventory. Um, and then actually this year, because it's a two host team with us and the chargers, that actually increases to about 6.25%. Um, totally. Then the, the participating team gets 17%, I think somehow there or some, somewhere around there. But that is subtracted if you basically, if you're the host team and the participating team, which had never happened. And last year was a little bit wonky because the stadium was the third full. As the host team and participating team, you're still capped at the same percentage that Cincinnati got. So we did lose gotcha. some tickets uh, from that uh, overall. So it, it is still a very hard and possible ticket, and, which is great. But we're trying to get as many in our season ticket holders' hands as we can. I was going to ask how, so you have about 70%, just like the Bengals do. How do you even begin to go about prioritizing who gets, who doesn't get, what the process is like? How have you guys distributed those? Well, Scott was the first to email. So he got the first, uh, we just that, take them, you know. That, now people will think that's true. You <laughs> <laughs> said you wanted to entertain, you know, and educate. So yeah, Scott emailed you know, the Bengals instead. You know, one of the, we had a policy a couple of years ago. So, you know, players get a certain amount through the, you know, by NFL rules as do coaches. And then you go through staff. Um, then you start taking your know, partners. And, you know, this year was also interesting because, you know, through the suites and the partnerships we did at SoFi Stadium when it was built, through some of the seat licenses, they had rights to Super Bowl tickets should it be played at SoFi Stadium. So you're trying to fulfill all of those requirements. You have your host committee requirements for people who donated and participated. You go through all of that, and then ultimately you get to what I call our you know unaccounted for number. And from there, that's when you really try to prioritize you know how you do it. And then a season ticket lottery as well that goes before the unallocated number <laughs> but you know what's hard is when you run a season ticket lottery when we did in atlanta basically it was great we kind of took care of everybody who wanted to go um here when you have over sixty thousand plus season ticket holders you know in less than 10 percent of that of tickets total you're basically your odds of winning the lottery aren't great now we were fortunate enough we've been able to get a few more tickets from the nfl we had some people decline the opportunity to buy so we're going to go back out with the second season ticket holder lottery uh, this week, but you do hear from some people that you haven't heard from, uh, you know, in a while. And, you know, when you have friends and family in your own city, it, it is different. And this is on the heels of fortunate enough to play in the NFC championship game, you know, two weeks ago or a week ago, which was the hardest ticket I've ever seen in Los Angeles, you know, period. So, you know, it has been a lot of ticket requests for the past few weeks, but could not be happier to be dealing with ticket requests. We're chatting with Kevin Demoff, the CEO of the Los Angeles Rams, and you mentioned SoFi, and I, I know we're past this, Kevin, but I'm curious, lessons learned for those who are looking in the future to build a stadium, and this was more than just a stadium. Now, this is a five-plus billion-dollar endeavor. Uh, 
Uh, any lessons learned? What What are the top two or three things that perhaps you didn't know going in you would pass along to owner X and Y who are about to embark on a similar plan? Yeah, look, I think the most important thing when you embark on a stadium project is to do a stadium that fits your market. Um, and especially, you know, I would say right now, if I were building any stadium but SoFi Stadium, I would probably be going smaller, more intimate, you know, more amenities, more luxuries. But in Los Angeles, when you're hosting the Super Bowl, when you're hosting college football playoff, we're bidding on the World Cup final, we're hosting the opening and closing ceremonies for the Olympics. You need a stadium that is capable capable of handling all those. So we're at a 70,000 uh, capacity. We can flex up standing room only to 90, 100,000. We don't really plan to do that. We're not doing that for this game. Uh, we're still really right around that 70,000 mark. You know, we have 267 suites. I'm not sure I would build that many in most other places. Wait, 267 suites. That's that, a, that, that, a lot. I mean, it sounds like a lot. I mean, I've, I've done my fair share of stadium tours. Where does that, you have any idea where that ranks in terms of stadiums? And I, and believe, I believe it is second behind Dallas. Um, okay. Not surprised, so, right? Not, not, not surprised. So, you know, we have 13,000 club seats. So all of those, you know, 3.1 million square feet, which is the largest stadium in the world from a square footage perspective. We have a 6,000 seat uh, music venue, performance venue, YouTube theater attached under the same roof, uh, which will host NFL honors uh, Thursday night. We have, you know, 300 acres of development, you know, close to a million square feet of retail, 500 departments, NFL media building, which is open across the street. You know, so... You know, what I tell everybody to attempt something on such a grand scale? No, but I think that's what the NFL required when it came back to Los Angeles. And I think when Stan Kroenke said, hey, let's go do this, I think you you had to go do it on a grand scale. So there, you know, would I wish we could stick to a budget better? Yes. Um, Check the groundwater. And, and by the way, you know, for the most part, when I look at all of these projects that are privately financed, it seems that most are off by like 40 to 50% these days. So I think we need new cost estimators in the world. Um, but aside from that, you know, there's not a thing about SoFi I would change. Yeah, I will say though, at least from an inflation standpoint, you didn't. I don't think you got pounded the way you would if you tried to embark on that project. Now, did you hedge on raw materials? I'm just curious, like really the business plan for the stadium. Did you hedge on materials? We actually did not hedge on materials. Uh-oh. Uh oh. And, and what was it? What was the net net on that? Uh, we wanted the head. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, there were a couple of design elements and the rain delay that put us behind. You know, it was really the labor cost um, and then some of just the delays that really drove uh, the expense. And then we, you know, we wound up basically adding seismic reinforcement as well, um, well above what we had originally projected. And some of that drove, you know, the cost, you know, we were fortunate, you know, enough that it was before kind of inflation and where it was today before some of the supply chain issues. Um, but and I would say with our stadium, one of the interesting things is people look at, you know, some of the numbers that were floated before. They look at the numbers where it wound up and they said, oh, the project doubled. That was never really apples to apples in that regard. When you have a 300-acre project, there's so much infrastructure that goes into a project. The stadium was the first thing to open. So most of the infrastructure winds up being attributed to that. Long term, as you add the hotels, the retail, the office buildings, you know, some of those will have probably better ROI because the infrastructure has already been attributed to the stadium. For people who do not understand the economics of the NFL, can you explain the advantageous nature of luxury suites and club seating versus just sort of open seating? What is shared and what you keep? Yeah. So, so in the NFL, all of your 34% of your ticket revenue is basically shared. 
called VTS, Visiting Team Share. Uh, now, shelter from that, if you have club seats, there's an element called club seat premium, which, you know, you kind of, that's the price above a normal ticket. Teams get to keep that. Now, a lot of that goes, ultimately, we can get really wonky into paying back your G4 loans that you get from the NFL. And then, you know, for a suite, you get to keep, a, if you charge $10 for a suite, you know, $2 of that is tickets. You share on the $2 of tickets, but you keep the other $8 you know, overall. So, you know, look, the NFL hasn't, you know, we are fortunate to be in a league having been on both sides of it where, you know, a significant portion of revenue is shared nationally. You share television, you know, we share ticketing, you know, revenue, the NFL, obviously you share national deals, you know, that goes a long way towards making everybody competitive. And I think you see that in this year's Super Bowl, you have Los Angeles is the second largest market. I'm sure Cincinnati's probably somewhere in the, you know, 20s uh, overall. And everybody has a chance to go compete for a Super Bowl. We've seen it with Kansas City and Tampa, you know, the past few years. But, you know, obviously over time, the more you can generate in local revenue, the better chance, you know, I think you're going to have to go reinvest in players, you know, coaches, teams, facilities, all of those things. But I think what's great about the league is market size does not dictate your ability to win. Um, it does not dictate your ability to field the best team. And, you know, I, to me, but at the same time, when you attempt a project like ours, local revenue, you know, when, you, when you're staring down a $5 billion stadium number, the more you can generate a local revenue, uh, the, the sooner you can chart to pay back some of that money. How about the the, the non-football nights? What, what does the calendar look like for SoFi Stadium? There's obviously another NFL tenant there, but I think a lot of people would be surprised at how dark the rest of the year, a lot of NFL stadiums end up being. It's not like Madison Square Garden that can do 300 plus events a year. I'm curious how much your your calendar is full for non NFL games right now. You know, we always looked at 40 to 50 events each year at SoFi Stadium. So of that, probably 30, you know, non NFL coming out of COVID. Uh, you know, it's been a little bit trying to understand how that would be. You is know, it better or worse? I understand that there's a lot of kind of backed up tour dates that are now looking for for venues right now. Has COVID actually maybe condensed it or made it more difficult? You know, 2021, we wound up, uh, we had the Rolling Stones in the building. We had BTS for their one concert internationally. You know, we have a ton of concerts on the books here for the summer and hopefully those all stay that way. So, I mean, there's a ton of pent up demand. I think 2022 will be busier from a, a concert schedule. We're hosting college football playoff next year. You know, we have the LA Bowl in the building, but we have about 30 events. And then our music venue, you know, is supposed to do another, you know, 50, kind of 60 events. So on campus, you're hoping to get 100, 120 events. And eventually, you know, the Clippers are setting up shop next door with the Intuit Dome, you know, which have another 50 to 60. So I think when you look at our 300 acres and really the sports entertainment complex that Santa's built, you know, with the now with the Clippers arena across the street, you're probably looking at 150 live events a year. Plus you have the form you know, right across the street, which is going to do another 50 to 60. So you're probably looking at half the, the nights a year, half the days, having some kind of live event in that Inglewood corridor, which is an amazing growth for, for that area. At what point is there too many venues in LA? The, the MLS team has, has a relatively new stadium. A lot of money just went into the Coliseum as well. You mentioned Steve Ballmer, what he's building. At, at what point is there just too many big arenas and, and, and big stadiums in, in, in Eben, the LA do, Eben, they're doing weddings and bar mitzvahs at Lambeau Field. As, as soon as LA <laughs> catches onto that trend, there won't be enough. Yeah, you know, I, I think, Eben, it's funny you say that though, right? 
Los Angeles is a different market. And I would always point this out to people. New York built six major new stadiums and arenas kind of in the decade between 2000 and 2010. Uh, the Coliseum, when we played in here in Los Angeles, was the sixth newest stadium in Los Angeles, and it was 100 years old, right? So you had the Coliseum and the Rose Bowl, Staples, I'm sorry, Crypto.com Arena. That's right. Now- even the folks at AEG are still doing that. I won't name names, yeah. Kevin, but even the AEG folks are still saying Staples. You know, but that's on 20 years and going through a renovation. I still call it the pond. I know it is now the Honda Center, but when I was growing up here, it was the Arrowhead Pond. Um, you know, Dignity Health Center is now probably close to 20 years old. So there aren't, you know, this new inventory that's coming to line, be it SoFi Stadium, uh, be it the Intuit Dome. I think all of it's coming in. Dodger Stadium is the third oldest baseball stadium. Angel Stadium is the fourth. You know, so this is kind of a new era in Los Angeles building. You know, and there's a ton of events and opportunity, but there's so much to do when you're talking 20 million people. And, you know, similar to other places, people on the West Side may not want to drive downtown for a concert. They may not want to drive to the Greek Theater or the Hollywood Bowl. You know, people in other places, you know, Orange County don't want to come to LA. So I think everybody's going to find their place. And, you know, but I do think it means you have to make your building spectacular so that it stands out above the rest. Kevin. So much of this week, I think the discussion is going to be about the Brian Flores lawsuit, and I'm sure Roger Goodell would be asked about it. Can you give us a glimpse into the hiring processes uh, for the Rams? Uh, I mean, we know who your coach is, obviously, but just just on on the macro scale, how do you go about trying to diversify the workforce? Well, look, I think, you know, by some measures in the NFL takes account, we're the most diverse workplace in the NFL. Um throughout the organization, kind of our 300 people. But of course, we're in Los Angeles, right? So I mean, that if you're not doing that, and I always want our workforce to represent the demographics of Los Angeles in the best possible way. Uh, we have uh, our organization on the non-football side is 50-50 male-female. Uh, I actually think we're 51% female. I think we're the only one that tips now majority female. Our leadership team breaks down exactly along those lines, 50-50 you know, male-female I've always been proud. We were the first team to have male cheerleaders, the first team to draft an openly gay player. We're the first, if you, it's actually the 75th anniversary of Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, you know, breaking the color barrier, reintegrating the NFL, you know, but look, there are the focus and challenges we all need to get better as a league. And I look back at our uh, head coaching search in 2017 that wound up with Sean McVay. Um, we did 10 interviews, uh, I believe four were minority candidates. Um, and we desperately tried to interview David Shaw <laughs> as well. So, you know, and, and turned us down. But, you know, look, I think when you go through the process and then most of those wound up getting jobs, be it Anthony Lynn, be it Steve Wilkes. Um, and so, but, but, but that's what people may miss, right? So, I mean, Kevin, going through the process helps candidates get future jobs. You know, we, I remember Steve Wilkes was our, his first interview was with us. Um, we had a great conversation. He was not ready at the time. Uh, we spent a bunch of time that year talking, you know, about how he could improve his candidacy, ways he could improve his interview. And the next year he, he got the Arizona Cardinals job. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, the one, you know, I think everybody strives for diversity. You know, it's been frustrating. I will say we had Raheem Morris as our defensive coordinator this year, who's done an amazing job. He got one interview in Minnesota. Um, and I think when you look at a Super Bowl team, you know, in the playoffs, I think we gave up two touchdowns. We gave up one touchdown in the first half in the playoffs. Um, and, you know, overall, our defense has played amazing. Raheem has done an amazing job. Now, I know he's been a head coach before, but watching him 
struggled to get interviews when many other defensive coordinators got multiple interviews that I think Raheem had a better record than, you get frustrated, I think, as a team, as someone who's promoting Raheem, who's banging the drum. I, each team, I truly think, makes their own decisions for their best possible team. But I think overall, the league has to look at the track record and understand. And, and I told someone, and I, I do, I feel, you know, I'm thrilled that Sean McVay is our head coach. Uh, he's done an amazing job and, and truly has transformed our organization in ways we could have never hoped. But I do feel guilty that pointing people down the path of the younger offensive coordinator when that is not a very diverse pool to pull from has set behind the minority candidate movement for a number of years. And I think, you know, that's something to fix. And if it were up to me, you know, there are so many ways we can go about doing it. But, and I said this to someone the other day, the problems we're seeing with minority candidates getting hired this year are not a reflection of the policies that are in place in 2021 and 2022. They're a reflection of the work that we didn't do as a league in 2016 in 2017, when these assistants were starting their journeys to becoming coordinators, they did not set up the process. You have to be thinking five, six years ahead to how do we go develop people who aren't on the radar right now so that we can grow. You can't just wave a magic wand and say, hey, these are the best candidates in this time. You have to put the time and effort in to develop all of these candidates and you know, I think one of the things we need to start to come up with realistic goals the same way we do for other large systemic issues that say by a certain point, you know, we're going to aim to have 10 minority head coaches. We're going to aim for a 50-50 split rather than trying to get in the moment and say, well, why did this candidate get chosen over that candidate? There are lots of reasons that can happen in an interview process. But I do think there's a lot of work to be done that can improve the system overall. What do you make of the Rooney rule? 20 years in at this point, there are certainly people out there who think it's helped. There are definitely people out there who think it's been it's been harmful. What, what do you think about that as we get to the 20th anniversary of it? What do you think about the way that's affected the league hiring practices? Well, I, th- I think it's certainly been helpful as you've looked at you know the numbers over time. I, and there are going to be ebbs and flows as there are in all things. I think one of the problems is we've had, what, eight or nine openings this year? I think we had eight or nine openings last year. If you're a league where you're changing 50% of your head coaches every two years, there's just not enough candidates to go fill those spots every two years. That means the entire league is changing over four times. I mean, I heard an amazing stat. Sean McVay is the second longest tenured coach in the NFC. Like that. and, And so I think as a league, we need to figure out how we get better at hiring and you know, we did a study earlier this year, and you're looking at about 20% of coaches hired over the past decade won a division title. Um, there were 63 coaches. Only, you know, 20 to 30% won a division title. Less than 20% won two playoff games. So as a league, we are terrible at hiring head coaches. Like, it just, and we need to get better at that. And I think we actually can figure out how we build a better system, how we start to finish improve the system. You're going to improve minority hiring along the way because you're going to find so many good candidates like a Raheem Morris, like our Tom, Thomas Brown, who's our assistant head coach, running SPACs coach. You know, we're fortunate at Jiro Evero, our defense, you know, secondaries coach, who is now likely going to go to Denver as their defensive coordinator uh, at the end of our, our run this year. Those people will start to get discovered in, in a meaningful way. But I think the whole system needs to be overhauled. But I think, I mean, your point about the Rooney rule, I think it was a good start. 
you know, I think trying to figure out ways to incentivize teams, but the work needs to be done into how we train young coaches when they come in the NFL, all of them, white, black, diverse, multiracial, how we make them better candidates from the start so that we have a better pool when teams look to go higher. Yeah, I don't want to pick on anybody, but David Stern uh, once uttered a very famous line when asked about a particular franchise, not a model of intelligent management. And I get the sense that <laughs> I'm not naming names, but I get the sense that, I mean, we, we can say that across the, like a broad spectrum, like there's a better way. And the, the enlightened and the franchises that do push and try, I think you're going to bear fruit and see no matter which way you go, it doesn't have to be the head coach, but throughout the franchise, you're just going to be, be a better team, get better candidates and get better results. And I know we're going a little long here, Kevin quickie for you. Uh, the NFL is making a push internationally. Now, you know, some of the some of the uh, markets were shared among other teams. You had to make bids, what you were going to do, how you were going to you know make your inroads there. Looks like the Rams looking out for Mexico, Australia, and China. That's a pretty big footprint. What is the grand plan? That is a huge footprint, right? That's I mean, a huge footprint. Yes, a couple million know, people. Look, when we came back to Los Angeles, you know, our goal has been we want to be a top ten sports franchise in the world. When you look at Lakers, Dodgers, Yankees, Cowboys, Arsenal, Man U. Barcelona, that's the level we believe we should be playing at long-term. And it's going to take work. It is not overnight. Um, and those are all international teams. And we're so fortunate. When you're in Los Angeles, SoFi Stadium is right in the flight path to LAX. It's one of the first things you see when you land in Los Angeles. Uh, number two destination from Latin America, number one destination from Asia. You know, And so you take something very simple. If you fly to the US from Australia, almost every time you have to fly over our stadium. Right, it is an entry point to to Australia. And so we looked at Australia. Uh, they play contact sports, you know, be it rugby, be it Australian rules football. They speak English. Um, natural connection, uh, big cities. You know, we thought that was a market we could really go in and grow. Uh, Mexico, natural connection with Los Angeles. We were supposed to play a game there in in 2018 until Shakira uh, kind of <laughs> tore up the field. We wound up having <laughs> a very memorable Monday night game here. Uh, looking to get back in Mexico, but you know, we are. Two hours away from the Mexico border as you get into Tijuana and Baja, California, three hours by flight to Mexico City. A lot of natural connections, you know, both from our fan base and our regions. We've had a really successful Vamos Rams platform here in LA. Uh, you know, and then China, you know, we've had Taylor Rapp, who's the only Chinese American player we've grown to become the second, first or second most popular team in China. I think it's wherever Tom Brady is always seems to Tom Brady is the most popular NFL player in China. And then, you know, we've kind of followed falling in right behind that. A great opportunity. I think one that obviously has a lot of, you know, question marks in the best approach and large market. But for us, it's, you know, I mean, I never want to have eyes bigger than our stomach. Uh, we have so much work to do in Los Angeles to grow our fan base, to keep growing it, to make it representative. But Los Angeles is one of the world's greatest international cities, uh, one of the world's greatest multicultural cities. If we don't take advantage of that by really trying to expand our wings and, and go international, uh, then we're not doing our part. And it's been great. You know, we did a sweepstakes in Mexico for the Super Bowl. We've had, I think, 30,000 plus signups in Mexico to win two Super Bowl tickets this week. Uh, we're throwing watch parties in China, in Australia, in Mexico to watch the game. It's fortunate that we're in it. But these are all very long-term plays. We didn't walk in with this idea of, hey, January 1st, we're going to go execute A, B, and C in these markets. It's how do we get to understand them? How do we learn them in five to 10 years from now? Will it bear fruit for us? I love it, Eben. It's good to know that even on the grand scale of the NFL, it's still about email capture and data analytics of customers. I love it. It's good to know there we're all go. in the same boat. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask, Kevin, if 
how much of you you're thinking about these international markets as promoting the Rams, the football team, and how much of it is promoting the NFL, the sport, and the and the league? It seems pretty clear that the league itself is thinking about this plan as a way of using kind of the expertise and the aspirations of individual clubs to go into specific overseas markets. It'll help that club. I think obviously, I think it also helps the sport. How much do you think of, of this as kind of becoming kind of the tip of the spear for spreading the game itself and the league itself, in addition to just the Rams as, as one thirty second of, of that yeah. entity? I think I mean, what we've seen, you know, as people become fans now, it really is, because of social media, because of player brands, right? It's players first, team second, leagues third. I think that's true for almost for sure. all leagues. And so I think, you know, what the league has done with the international markets is say, okay, you know, coming in with an NFL brand may not excite a fan, you know, right? That doesn't make them a f- follow someone on Instagram. All right, they're going to follow a player. Then they might follow a team. And so I think it's a little bit of push-pull. Um, we do it for the Rams, but obviously if we do it right, it should benefit the NFL, right? I think it is, you know, synergistic in in that regard. And, you know, we, we're fortunate to have a team right now that has a lot of star power. If we can continue to do that, you know, hopefully, you know, we grow it, but, you know, I, we look at it, you know, hey, Taylor Rapp may not be huge star power here in the U.S. as certain safety, um, but in China, he, he has major star power. Um, and so I think it's trying to understand that. I, I've been so, you know, he is a free agent, but Odell Beckham, we've had big stars of the Rams. He's at a different level in terms of his fandom and what he does. Von Miller, the same way. So I view it as promoting the Rams, promoting Los Angeles and SoFi Stadium. Uh, you know, we're also fortunate with Stan's portfolio. We have Arsenal, you know, as a team. We have the Nuggets, we have the Avalanche, we have the Rapids. How do we start to wrap all those properties together, you know, and really benefit each other, especially the learnings from Arsenal as an international brand as you go to to some of those markets? Uh, I think all of it's on the table, but we're going to be... We're going to be learning every day as we go and every month and trying to get better. And, you know, Stephanie Chain, Dan August, Isaac Ortega, the people who oversee our project right now, I have great faith in them that we will get this done in a meaningful way. And if we do it right for us, it will benefit the NFL, I'm sure, as well. All right. You tangentially mentioned Denver, the word Denver. So I'm going to bring it up. The, the biggest stories of the year may be the sale of the Denver Broncos. Evan and I have been banding this about. Uh, of course, we're following it closely. You want to guess for us? Got, got a got a sale price, an eventual sale price for those Broncos? <laughs> um, I do not have an eventual sale price, uh, but I look. I, I think it will be an immense competition. I think when you look at an amazing market, um, you know, huge geographic swath, when you get basically all of the Rockies, you can draw you know lines out everywhere from Denver without touching another NFL city. Uh, very close to the West Coast. Um, you know, so for anybody who, you know, whose money is concentrated over here, you know, whose businesses are here, you know, tech companies, all of that, uh, I think it's going to be an amazing process because I think it's also the first team that's kind of come on the market in a while that people have anticipated and been waiting for, you know, some of the other teams that have come on the market recently, you know, unfortunately through a passing or something else happened quickly. Uh, this is one people have circled for a long time. Uh, I I know, you know, a lot of people chatter on bidders and I, I think it will be, you know, a great thing for the NFL, you know, Joe Ellis, John Elway, they've done an amazing job running that franchise for a very long time. Um, and I'm excited to sit back and watch. I, you know, I bought some Bitcoin hoping, you know, maybe that it would go up and I could bid on the Broncos, but uh, I think I'm going to be just short. <laughs> when did you buy? When did you buy? I know you're being flippant, but when did you really buy? 
last week at the dip, right? So if you buy at the dip, you know, I'm hopeful by the time the team sold, if it goes to where it's supposed to, you know, then I'll be great. Eben's been making fun of me because I've been I've been in on Ethereum for a little while here and I've sort of like I can't help but I've been watching it every day and he's like would you stop telling me the price of Ethereum Scott so <laughs> <laughs> seems like the kind of thing you want to buy and hold and not think about on a daily basis Kevin regarding the Broncos do you do you think of this as a kind of a, an important litmus test for how soaring valuations and the and the strength of the NFL business it seems to me there's there's a way in which there's a ton tons of bidders and and it it really shows how important and how and how big and how exclusive the NFL brand is and 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 there's possibly a scenario in which it's maybe not as vibrant as people think it is and and, and that maybe that is an indication that NFL teams can't keep appreciating 20% every 5 years that there might be a cap on the market well look I, I think the first thing is a great credit to the NFL after the sale of the Panthers right they revisited some of the rules i think they certainly created a ceiling for that bid. Um, there were some unique elements to that bid, but I think you know the equity requirements, the minority investors, I think all of that as you look at, at what's happening in the world. I think the Broncos will be an interesting test case just when you look at it. you know, People like everything. I think people have frothy imaginations of what it could generate. And so that may, you know, it may wind up disappointing for that, even though I'm sure it will set records you know, across the board. I, I think it'll be a good test of you know, do the rules need to be looked at a little bit differently? You know, 30%, you know, equity rules, you know, what did the markets look like? You know, so many things go into play. How much can you borrow? What are interest rates? You know, how many people do you bring along? You know, team revenues, do you own your own stadium? I think, you know, the Broncos have a pretty good lease at uh, Empower Field, but they do not own the building, which may change, you know, some of the dynamics. Obviously, coming off of COVID, you know, revenues have rebounded, but you know, do you kind of look at historic revenues? Do you look at the past year? But obviously, the first team to come up for sale, you have 10 years of labor peace, 10 years of media deals, you know, a really strong historic franchise, uh, I think will be a good indicator for the NFL of what those markets, you know, can look like. But I think one of the crazy things when you start to get to franchise values are, you know, are they, you know, they're growing at such a huge rate of, you know, how many people can actually afford these teams and don't actually have them, um, you know, and you know, where does that go? But at the same time, you know, I will say there are people I've talked to about the Broncos process who told me five years ago that they would never consider an NFL team. And I was chatting with them last week and they're asking me questions about the Broncos. So, <laughs> you know, like all things, things change, right? And I think the Broncos, hopefully they wind up uh, with a great buyer who helps improve uh, the NFL for all of us. All right. That is Kevin Demoff, CEO of the Super Bowl bound Los Angeles Rams. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us as you have done in the past. And uh, Eben and I will be out in LA and we look forward to seeing you. My, my only concern when we did this three years ago, we lost the Super Bowl. So you know, the superstitious <laughs> part of me uh, thought about not doing this, but that was many companies and different people ago. So, you know, I, Scott and Eben, if we lose this week, I promise Next you, I will time, never no do shot. another Super Bowl <laughs> podcast with you, and we will find other members of our team to do it. That was the Bloomberg podcast. This is the Sportico podcast, completely different iteration of what we do. So perhaps like your said, luck I'm, will change. I am giving you a second chance, you know, at, you know, everybody's changing the rules to increase their value. Sportico is the same. And, and so with that, you know, hopefully this will bring us good luck. You got it. See you soon, Kevin. Thanks, guys. All right, I've been good friend of the program, Kevin Demoff, and I mean, just 
I, I don't even know where to start with that one, whether it's Rooney Rule, uh, Minority Hiring, Stadium. I love the fact they didn't hedge, so they wound up saying, you know, making money. Um, just a lot to digest there. That That is why we do what we do. There's just so many, so many things about the business of sport that fans may not realize goes into this. He also solved for me, Scott, who I'm rooting for on Sunday. If Kevin joining us again is contingent on the Rams right, winning right, right. the Super Bowl, I think I am. Uh, I think I'm wearing gold and blue on on Sunday. Uh oh, I will not tell the Bengals. He is <laughs> Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. We'd like to thank first our producer Matt Whitehurst. I often forget him, but he does a great job. And our social media editor is Cor Veltman. She likes it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will very soon become the Sportico Media Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.